Hello and welcome to another episode of the Dugout Podcast here on WFI. I am your host, Andy Wells, and joining me today, and I'm delighted to say this, is Lee Scott, uh, lead analyst for Total Football Analysis, uh, his opposition analysis, he's a first-team scout, and also now, Lee, you're an author. <laughs> Apparently so. <laughs> uh, yeah, that's still really surreal to hear people say it out loud, to be honest, but yeah, hi, thanks for having me. <laughs> A pleasure, a pleasure is all I was without a shadow of a doubt. So, yeah, let's get into the book first of all. Uh, Master in the Premier League, yeah, and it's it centers around uh, Pep Guardiola, doesn't it? So, uh, for the listeners out there, please do do tell us a little bit more about what this what the book's all about. Yeah, it's it's something that I've had kind of in my mind for a little while. I've written a lot over the years and I've always kind of thought that I would like to write a book at some point, almost just as a bucket list thing. Um, I hadn't really entertained the thought seriously, though. I'd thought about self-publishing a couple of times and then off the back of seeing somebody else mention that they were having a book published by Pitch Publishing, I decided just to, to send off a, a quick email with a, a quick proposal about mastering in the Premier League. And the automatic reply from the email that I got back said that it might take weeks for the publisher to get back to me. And it was actually the very next morning they came back and they were really interested. So we kind of kick-started the process. But I think as somebody who's been interested in the tactical side of football for a long time now, it really made sense for me to cover Pep Guardiola in, in as much detail as I could, and specifically Manchester City, um, his period at City. I think that as a coach, he's kind of the most progressive, tactically-minded coach I've seen for a long time. There are a couple probably who come close, but, but certainly Guardiola is somebody who, who I've always been really interested in. I've, I've enjoyed watching his career. So, yeah, it was uh, the idea was to sit down and kind of break down the way that Pep Guardiola sets up Manchester City, so to look at different tactical concepts. And then later on in the book, we look at different players and explain kind of how those players fit into those concepts and what their role is. So I've kind of tried to encompass everything, I think. You mentioned that, you know, that Guardiola fascinates you tactically. Now, I've heard many, many discerning voices from fans of other clubs. Um, but one thing I have heard is is someone say, I, I don't get how he's a tactician. I don't rate him tactically. What, how has he ever had to be ta- sure that he's a tactically um, enabled because he's got the best teams, he's got the best players, um, you know, he just plays his way and everyone's got to try and beat it. Um, surely the the only way he could display his tactical nows would be to take on a, a poorer side and show that he can out-tactic better teams. Um, <laughs> would you want to shoot that one down? I, I think that's always going to be something that's levelled at a coach like Guardiola. And, and believe me, I'd be I'd be all for him coming and taking charge of my team, Aberdeen. If he wants to come up to Scotland at any point, then he'd be more than welcome. And, and believe me, he would have absolutely no money to spend. I think that kind of what a lot of people fail to recognise with Guardiola is the system and the tactical concepts that he uses. They they make the players at his disposal better than they perhaps are or would be without him. Um, he's the kind of coach who improves every player by 10 to 15%. So he takes a good player and makes them excellent. He takes an excellent player and makes them world-class. And I think that's been a common theme that we've seen from Guardiola throughout his coaching career. Now, don't get me wrong, absolutely, his, his clubs have spent money. You only have to look at Manchester City last season when they 
they restocked their fullback positions and kind of everybody took a step back and was stunned by the fact that they'd gone out and spent so much money on fullbacks. But Guardiola understood that as part of his tactical vision, as, as part of the way that he wants to set his side up, the fullback position is one of the keys. So he understood that he had to get the right profile of player in there and perhaps he didn't quite do so. I mean, Benjamin Mendy, for example, with all of his injuries, I think that that's a kind of a position that's still up for grabs in this City squad. But for all the, the criticism of Guardiola and talking about the fact that he just spends his way to titles, I, I think that people are missing the point. There's no way that the likes of Barcelona, Bayern Munich, Manchester City would, would be so keen to appoint Guardiola if it wasn't for the fact that he was so highly regarded as a tactician and as a coach. It's not just about the money. You can spend all the money in the world. Look at the amount of money that Jose Mourinho spent when he was in charge of Manchester United. Tactically, he was completely outclassed by Guardiola. And, and that's kind of what you're getting with Guardiola. You're getting a coach who, who understands what he wants and and what he wants is to, to set his side up in a very specific way, in a way that you're right. It, it is essentially come down to Pep Guardiola sets up Manchester City and dares other people to stop him. And that's the way it should be for a club like Manchester City and for a coach like Pep Guardiola. Yeah, just briefly stepping back then, I mean, as, as I mentioned there, like with his reputation that, you know, some people will downplay it simply because he's only managed, you know, really good teams, as you, as you mentioned as well, you know, he's had vast amounts of money to spend, he's had great resources at his fingertips, not just money, but also the quality of plays he's had at Barcelona by Munich and Manchester City. But going back to Barcelona, I think it's easy to forget at this juncture you know, what he actually took charge of at Barcelona as compared to what he's remembered for at Barcelona because yes. everyone associates Guardiola Barcelona with that great Messi team, Xavi, Iniesta, playing some of the most unbelievable football I've ever seen in my life and yeah. I, I'm not sure I'll ever see anything quite like them again. But th that wasn't exactly the team that he took over. It it didn't look like that. And, and I think there's an excellent book by Graham Hunter, Barca, that kind of lifts the lid into Guardiola in the training ground uh, and the kind of guy that he is and why some players could take to him and other players just simply did not fit his system. So have you, have you discovered that looking into it, that, that there's so much more to the man than than what we see nowadays and, and all this money? Absolutely. And if you, if you look at it, it was, a, it was a surprise. I mean, I still remember... Guardiola as a player and he was a fantastic player, a holder midfielder, a number six for Barcelona before he moved on to, to a variety of clubs, Brescia and Roma probably most notably. But it was a huge surprise to me when, when Barcelona actually appointed Pep Guardiola in the first place. I remember thinking that it was a giant risk because they'd obviously just parted company with Frank Rijkaard who was one of the more successful Barcelona coaches in recent years. But the squad that Guardiola took over at Barcelona, it was unbalanced. It was There were a lot of cultural issues within the squad that had to be dealt with. And I think it was a mark of the man, not quite the coach, that, that he took those problems head on. He, he told Ronaldinho and Deco, two key players for Barcelona, during their success under Rijkaard, he told them that they, they weren't needed, that they could leave. And the other player that was obviously told that he could leave was Samuel Eto'o, the Cameroon striker. Um, Eto'o managed to convince Guardiola that he could fit into the tactical system, but he still only lasted one more year. And then you look at exactly how Guardiola created what he did at Barcelona, and I think I completely agree with you. That's the, 
the greatest team that I've ever seen and I don't expect to see another team play that kind of football. Certainly not any point soon anyway. But he was the one who was brave enough to promote the likes of Pedro and Sergio Busquets from, from the youth system in Barcelona, took them into the first team picture. But he was also the one who played Iniesta and Xavi alongside each other. I, I don't know if you know, but for a long period before Guardiola took charge, there, there was a widespread feeling around Barcelona and the fan base and the media that Xavi and Iniesta were too similar to play side by side. Now, if it wasn't for a coach like Guardiola, who was so specific with his football and vision when he took charge, that he not only thought that they could play together as central midfielders at eights, he thought that they had to. And if it wasn't for Guardiola taking charge, we, we would never have got that triangle of Busquets, Xavi and Iniesta playing together for as long as they did. And some of the football they played, some of the passing combinations, the movement, the, the one-touch or even half-touch passing, I think we'd have missed out on all of that. And that's kind of, that for me, more even than Messi, who I believe is the greatest player who's ever played the game. I've been lucky enough to see him play live and it's an experience I won't forget. But even more than Messi, those three in the midfield and the way that they combined was kind of the, what made football the way that it was, really. Yeah, I totally agree with your own Messi. Just another little thing then from um, Guardiola's time at Barcelona. I think I think it was the start of what has almost become um, a hallmark of his managerial career. Is this kind of myth busting that uh, certain play, you know players who are playing a position can only do this kind of thing? As all that you know that position is suited to that player, and this position must only do these these things. Mm-hmm. And we started to say you know playing a Champions League final with midfielders at centre back who yeah. have never played at centre back. Yeah. And 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 that old school mentality was that, well, how can they win? Because they're playing midfielders at centre back. It can't work. You have to have a specialist in that position. But this this thing about his system and what they did meant it it was almost as though it didn't matter who played there because as a team, that they functioned so effectively that they would overcome it. And you almost forgot that Yaya Toure was playing centre-back in the Champions yeah, League final. Yeah. It, it was one of the... I mean, it's not only in the defence, if you think about it, he, Barcelona, during Guardiola's reign, signed David Villa, the, the, who's still, I believe, the, the highest scorer for Spain internationally, and played him in the left wing. He signed Thierry Henry, the Arsenal legend, and played him on the left wing because he understood that their skill set and their finishing ability was more important coming in from that left-hand side where the likes of Xavi, Iniesta and Messi would be able to play the final pass through to them coming in on that diagonal for them to finish. But instead of playing them as a fixed striker, he moved them out a little bit to give the defences more problems. We saw the same thing in the defence. It wasn't just Yaya Turi. We saw Seydou Keita playing defence for them. We saw him turn Javier Mascherano, one of the best midfielders in, in Liverpool and Premier League's team in recent years that he took Javier Mascherano and turned him into a centre-half and he played there for years. It it was just a different way, I think, of looking at football. And I think that we're quite likely to see that again this coming season at Manchester City. I think he's got a couple of tactical surprises lined up that I think might catch a couple of people off guard. 
Well, well, just just on that, you know, the tactical surprises and innovations, and something you also mentioned earlier about, you know, the importance of fullbacks in his system, and we've seen that all the way through. Obviously, Dani Alves been such a potent weapon for him at Barcelona, but I think moving on to his time at, uh, at Bayern, something that um, that became quite well noted really was was Philip Lam and uh, and David Alaba. Or being inverted fullbacks, you know, not overlapping fullbacks, but actually coming into central midfield to overload a midfield. I mean, it was just something completely wacky and different. Yeah. And it was, you know, what, where, where do these ideas come from? It, it does, does the guy just sit there brainstorming all night about what he can do with on a football pitch? I, th- I think largely he does. I, I think a lot of his ideas. Um, the, the books by Marty Pernow, there's one in, I think it's the first book on Guardiola that covers his time at Bayern Munich specifically. And I think in that he talks about the way that Guardiola would prepare for a game where he would almost lock himself away, um, lock himself away at his home and in his office and just study, study, study the opposition until he had that light bulb moment of the, the tweak or the concept or the structure or system that he knew that he could implement with his team that would beat the opposition. I think that to an extent, the the introduction of the inverted fullbacks were almost a reaction to his desire to free up the likes of Ruby and Robin, who played wide for Bayern Munich at the time. I think it's no secret that when Guardiola first went to Bayern Munich, his idea was to turn Frank Ruby into a false nine. He wanted to play him in the same role that he did Messi, but Ribéry was not quite as instinctive a player, I think, as Messi was. He, he wasn't quite as tactically flexible and he really struggled with not playing in the wide areas. So the idea almost became that, Bar- that Bayern Munich would at times line up with, when they had possession, it looked like a triple pivot in midfield because you, you had Alaba on one side, Alonso in the middle, and then Lamb joining from the other side. And the fact that the fullbacks kind of emptied the wide spaces, it meant that the the wide midfielders, the wide attackers, so Robin and Ribéry were able to get the ball isolated against the opposition fullbacks. So Bayern Munich could dominate the ball in the centre, and then as the opposition kind of drew in and drew more compact around them in the centre of the pitch, the ball would quickly be switched out to the wide area where they'd have a one-on-one with one of their, obviously, highly skilled attacking wingers who would be quite happy to take on a defender one-on-one and, and more often than not beat them. So I think that the um, inverted fullbacks, I think it was more of a, a reaction to a problem than it was something that he came up as a, a concept as an in and of itself. And we've seen the inverted fullbacks at Manchester City, but when he first became the Manchester City coach, a lot of people in the media and a lot of fans thought that the fullbacks were going to be constantly inverted so people were kind of waiting to see the fullbacks moving at the central areas all the time and they haven't done that there are some games where depending on the opposition and the way the opposition are playing or depending on the players that Guardiola was using at the time there are times that the fullbacks will move into those areas you saw Fabian Delft for example when he played at left back he would quite often move narrow but even Kyle Walker on the other side who was traditionally thought to be a an overlapping fullback. We saw him a lot last season playing more narrow areas. So it does still happen. But I think it's Guardiola's kind of changed as a coach now. He's not quite as dogmatic as he used to be, and he's not quite as as wedded to one concept or one idea. He's a lot more flexible and fluid of what he does throughout a game, and that's kind of part of what makes it so interesting to me. 
Yeah, I was. I mean, you took the words out of my mouth. I was. I was actually going to ask you about that, uh, that whole inverted uh, fullback thing coming into Manchester City and the expectation that people uh, yeah. had that he would employ the same tactic there. And again, I, I guess that just emphasises, you know, what you've said there. Just emphasises that he's he's not steadfast and and held to to one way of playing. It, it does. It, it does switch, change, and as you said, so tactically flexible and, and innovative. Um, but but one thing, just coming into the start of his uh, Manchester City career then, uh, I mean, obviously people were playing almost like playing fantasy sides. New manager comes in, obviously he's going to have a lot of money to spend. And the initial thing is, um, who does he sell? Who does he get rid of? And I see a lot of ex-pros saying, oh, uh, Aguero will go, David Silva will go. They're not... Pep Guardiola players and yeah. I was astonished because for me that they were certainly David Silva I thought was you know if you uh, punched everything into a computer for your prototype of a Guardiola player I thought <laughs> David Silva would come out actually yeah. as, as not so much as a winger as an attacking player more of a midfielder to link you know the, the link in that kind of midfield to attack almost in that Iniesta <laughs> type role so uh, what was that your expectation that uh, the likes of David Silva that we've seen such you know play such a pivotal role uh, at Manchester City under Guardiola and Aguero too? Do you, was that your expectation that um, they would play a large part? I think Silva certainly. Um, I, I fully expected him to turn Silva into one of the eights, um, which is obviously what's what's happened. He he plays the almost the Iniesta role and. He plays it so well. At, at times, it's almost like watching Iniesta when you watch David Silva when he's in form. The way that he, he picks up the ball, he drifts into space in the half spaces on that side of the field. And he just always seems to receive the ball in space. It, it's one of these things that a lot of people don't necessarily pick up on or that's underrated about players is exactly how they receive the ball and where they receive the ball. People often think that it's it's almost accidental or they just happen to be standing where they're standing. But for the very best players, for the likes of David Silva, for even Mesa Ozil at, at Arsenal is another one, the way that they pull away from defenders, just little, just not even five yards, just a yard, two yards. And that space can make all the difference when a player gets the ball. And, and Guardiola is very much a, a coach who demands that his players understand and, and utilise space wherever they can find it in the field, and especially in the final third. So I think that when he took over at Manchester City, I think that I expected the role that David Silva played for the club would, would change markedly. And I think it, it almost has to an extent, but certainly... I didn't think that he would be one of the players that they would move on. Sergio Aguero, on the other hand, might have been another matter, though. So, did you expect him to uh, to move Aguero on? Did you did you not feel that perhaps Aguero was not really suited to to what we'd seen from uh, from Guardiola and, and what he expected of his attacking players? Because I always felt that Aguero had the technique, the intelligence, the movement, and and everything about him to to be very very effective. I, I guess the, the the only question mark would be whether or not he was willing to sacrifice himself for the team in way, in, in the way that you often expect Guardiola attackers to do so. Yeah, and I think I think you're absolutely right. I think that was the key, um, and I think that the fact that Aguero has not only lasted as long as he has under Pep Guardiola, but he's he's maintained his position as a key player for the club. 
I think that that is another sign that Guardiola has become less dogmatic as he's become more experienced as a coach. Because the Guardiola that was at Barcelona would simply not have had Sergio Aguero as his central striker. There's no way Aguero doesn't press effectively. He he cuts down passing lanes. That's something that he does do quite well. But his pressing and his defensive work rate and his his willingness to empty spaces for others to move into that's not really something that he's got in his game. But I think that Guardiola has come to realise that that the positive aspects of Aguero's game, the movement, the finishing, the control, how decisive he can be in key matches. I think that Guardiola has been able to make, almost make allowances in his tactical system to allow Aguero to thrive and to keep Aguero there. But I guess that's part of the you know the question surrounding Manchester City at the moment that we're talking about David Silva, who's going into his age 33 season, and Sergio Aguero going into his age 31 season. Both of them played just almost 4,000 minutes apiece last season for Manchester City over all their, their competitions. And I think the question going forward for Manchester City and for Pep Guardiola is almost how he starts to phase them out a little bit and how he cuts their minutes to allow almost a a plan to be put in place for their replacements, if you like. Yeah, I think the Aguero one is certainly at this stage is certainly a more difficult one to answer. But I mean, mentioned there, look, David Silva, we we both expected him to move more into the position he did. Did you expect Kevin De Bruyne to also be moved into that kind of position? I think that when Manchester City signed him, I, it was always going to be interesting to see exactly what De Bruyne became. When he first broke through in Belgium, he was a, a right winger, almost a second striker. And he impressed enough to obviously get the move to Chelsea. I don't think Chelsea quite knew how to play him. I don't think they knew what they had, which obviously that's been borne out by the fact that they let him leave and that's came back to bite them quite substantially, I think. Uh, Then when he went to Wolfsburg, he was a 10. So you have a player who's played in a variety of different positions already in his career. And in Germany for that season with Wolfsburg, Kevin De Bruyne was absolutely sensational. He was probably the best player in European football for a period of time playing for Wolfsburg just with the the sheer amount of assists and goals that, that he managed to get in that season was unreal. So it was no surprise really that a club like Man City moved for him. But I don't know if I saw him playing specifically as an eight. I still thought that he would be developed either as a, an attacker from the right side, not quite a winger, I'm not sure what his role would have been, or alternatively I could have seen him used up front by Guardiola kind of as the focal point, so it's definitely been interesting for me to see the way that De Bruyne has managed to adapt to playing as an eight, and the balance that De Bruyne and Silva offer with completely different playing identities, different playing styles, different skill sets, I think having players in the midfield who are just quite as good as those two, but are also so different poses a lot of different problems for the opposition and that's part of what's made Man City so special I think Yeah, I, I didn't want to get away from the David Silva question as when you mentioned as to what's next, uh, I just purposely wanted to go the long way around it so to speak so he's, you know, <clears throat> as we mentioned look, Kevin De Bruyne, he's made that transition, so there's Silva there's De Bruyne, but over the past year we've seen the rise of Bernardo Silva Yeah, and and my question would be could Bernardo Silva now really sort of take over that position from from David Silva? Because we've seen Bernardo Silva push further forward 
an unbelievable work rate. I mean, some, yeah. some of the some of the individual performance he, he put in in terms of what he gave to the team on and off the ball were quite astonishing. I felt uh, last season, but I, I think we've seen him d- develop more and more. And I I was really really impressed. At, and and I got the feeling that here's the guy that is, is the natural successor to David Silva. I mean. It, do you agree with that? Do you, do you think that's what we're likely to see? I think so. I, it, it's going to be interesting to see. I think that at the moment Manchester City have got a, a group of players who are almost interchangeable in their attacking roles. So if you were to pick Manchester City's best eleven going into the first game of the season, all things being equal, and if Leroy Sané has figured out his, his issues with Guardiola that were evident last season, I think that you would start with Aguero up front. You'd start with Possibly Lero Sani left attack, um, Raheem Sterling right attack, and then you'd have Kevin De Bruyne. And I think that you would go in to start the season with Bernardo Silva in that David Silva role. I think that David Silva's already said that this will be his last season at Manchester City. I think he's given himself that, that last year to almost get a little bit of closure from the club. The, the club were desperate to keep him. Make no mistake about it, the club are desperate to have him this season. And he will play an important role, but I don't think that he will necessarily be a first choice if all things are equal and everybody's fit. But you've also got to factor in the Phil Foden question. Um, there, there's absolutely no sign that Phil Foden's going to be allowed to go out on loan by the club. I think that he will now be in a position more so than last season. Last season was almost his breakthrough year. It was the year where everybody was kind of constantly expecting to see him pick up more minutes but Guardiola was quite insistent that he still had development to do and he, there were still elements of the tactical game plan and the concepts that Guardiola wanted that Foden needed to pick up and, and kind of perfect. I think that now going into this season if Phil Foden doesn't get significant first team minutes I think that we'll look to, we'll see him look to move on from the club next season and that's something that I don't think that the Manchester City fan base would would stand for given that he's an academy product and somebody that they want to see playing. So, but I think it all ties in together. You, as I said, you've got Raheem Sterling playing right attack. I think that gradually we're going to see Raheem Sterling moved inside. He's going to become, I think, over the next two years, we're going to see Guardiola look to use him more as a central striker as Aguero kind of drops off and loses some of his first team minutes, and then Bernardo Silva will play from the right the right side as he has and then Phil Foden perhaps gets minutes in the David Silva role when David Silva's not available so it's a huge balancing act at the moment but I think that when David Silva does start to lose minutes in the first team I think that those minutes will go to either Bernardo Silva or Phil Foden and I guess it's a good thing to have that problem for Manchester City you've almost got too many players who are potentially or who are top class trying to fit into one position yeah, do you think um, lots of people connected to Manchester City, you know, within the club and fans alike, will be looking at uh, Jadon Sancho? Obviously, he left the club to get minutes. Has been a sensation at Borussia Dortmund, uh, developed at an incredible rate, and is now, you know, one of the most exciting talents in European football. Do you, do you think they kind of look at that and think, okay? We don't want to take that same risk with Phil Ford, and we want to ensure that he does get the the fullest opportunity to uh, to progress. Uh, and and I guess over this next year, you think that that's a real, really, really important year for him in terms of proving that he can make that step up himself. 
Yeah, absolutely. I mean, this is Foden's age 19 season. Um, this is the point where he really needs to sign. I mean, before we talk about that, I guess we should talk about the fact that whenever he plays for Manchester City, he absolutely does not look out of place as a 19-year-old. He's a natural ball carrier in midfield. As a talent, I think he could potentially be world-class in five, six years as he develops, much the same way that Jadon Sancho will be world-class in five, six years as he develops. I think that if Man City had managed to keep both of those, then the, the prospect for their team going forward would be frightening. But the issue now is, I don't know if you've noticed, but Man City are currently playing in this International Champions Cup friendly tournament. They played West Ham recently, and there were two. There was an 18-year-old and a 17-year-old played in centre midfield. Adrian Bernabe, an ex-Barcelona player, he's the 18-year-old, and Tommy Doyle, who's only 17, but he's an academy product as well. He's an eight as well, like Foden. And Manchester City fans are losing their minds over these two players and and the way that they came in. And I, I think I saw somebody say that they had magic in their boots. So. It doesn't look like the pathway for the first team is getting any clearer any time soon if these kind of players are coming through behind Foden. Um, that's when clubs like Manchester City really need to have clear development plans for all their players. And Phil Foden is certainly going to be key in that. He's going to need to be kicking on his development plan or being allowed to go out on loan to a club that will develop him. And I mean, see, obviously when you talk about Manchester City, it's so easy to get caught up. Uh, talking about attacking players uh, because they do play some uh, scintillating attacking football. Even as a Liverpool man fan myself, <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, as a pure football fan and a and a football purist, um, if that sounds a bit snobby, I, I I love to see good football. I like to yeah. see it played, and they they play tremendous football for me. They play football the way it should be played, or they look to play it the way it should be played in my mind. Uh, and I, so I can appreciate what they what they do as a football team, and and the attacking stuff obviously grabs all the attention. But right behind them, um, a guy who in the last couple of years has really sort of got got the attention that that he deserves, uh, and and started to get uh, the credentials that he's earned over over years is Fernandinho, and he's coming now into the you know into the the autumn of his career, or even yep. into the twilight of his career. How just how how integral is that role anchoring that midfield behind all those attacking players? I think it's really important. But throughout his career, Guardiola has kind of used different players in that role. So the likes of Busquets and uh, Xabi Alonso, who is a Liverpool fan, you'll obviously know really well. Um, Busquets at Barcelona, Xabi Alonso at Bayern Munich, Javi Martinez at, Bar- at Bayern Munich for a period, and then Fernandinho at. City, I think that we've almost seen different kinds of players used as that that base of the midfield. But when Fernandinho first came to to most of our attention, he was playing as an eight for Shakhtar Donetsk. He was more of an advanced midfielder who would you know play the kind of through balls that we see from David Silva, Kevin De Bruyne. So it's interesting to see the fact that he's been used in that role. But I think that. Now, as you say, we really saw last season when injury or suspension ruled Fernandinho out. I really think that that's the first time that we've seen Guardiola really tested as the city coach. Not not by the opposition, next to Liverpool, obviously, pushed them all the way. But having to find a solution for the Fernandinho problem, because John Stones certainly isn't the answer at the base of the midfield. OK, Gundogan certainly isn't the answer. They've signed Rodri 
Um, Rodri, the Athletic Madrid midfielder, is a fantastic player. He's somebody that's really interesting. I spoke to um, Kieran Smith, who is obviously quite well known in social media as the the person most you know, knowledgeable certainly in Britain about positional play, the, the style of play that Guardiola likes to use um, Kieran spent a lot of time in Spain and when he came back I briefly spoke to him about players and he told me then that Rodri was going to be a world class talent and Rodri was only 17 at the time um, so I've kind of followed his career with interest since then and seeing him now move to Man City I think this is where and we're going to start to see the tactical surprises that I referenced earlier on. I think that we're going to see Rodri playing more at the base of the midfield, as you'd expect, kind of as the the Busquets replacement. I think they're quite similar players. Busquets in his, his prime, his pomp. I think that you'll see elements of that in Rodri's game. But I think that we're going to see Fernandinho played as a central defender more. Um, it's something that we saw a couple of times last season. We, we saw... Fernandinho on the right side of the centre-halves and it was really interesting because he's capable of defending, he can play that role perhaps not against world-class strikers he's going to struggle more then, the same way that Javier Mascarano used to struggle against world-class strikers, but then when they transition to the attacking phase, from the defensive phase, having Fernandinho be able to step from that defensive role into the base of the midfield and kind of develop a double pivot there with Rodri I think that that's something that Guardiola will find really interesting. And that's a combination that we're going to see, I think, next season quite a bit. I think that's why Man City haven't been active in the transfer market to replace Vincent Company as the fourth centre-back. So Fernandinho will, will effectively role, fill the role of the fourth centre-back in the squad. Just just briefly then on, on Manchester City, and as you mentioned there, Vincent Company. You know, a fantastic career, fantastic player. I remember seeing him uh, playing centre-back at, at Hamburg uh, and being really impressed with him there. I mean, been a tremendous player. Uh, replacing him will be, not just on the pitch, off the pitch as well, and not all these qualities, is going to be very, very difficult. But you mentioned you feel we could see Fernandinho stepping into that role. There's been links in some sections of the media uh, linking Manchester City with a move, to, move for... Um, Harry Maguire. Now, is that something that you you think there's any credence in? Do, do do you think he, if they actually did that, do you think he would fit naturally into into the Manchester City system under Guardiola? I think that I mean obviously the links. I think that there was interest at one point in the deal for Harry Maguire for Man City. I think that they've they were also interested in De Ligt, um, who's obviously gone to Juventus now from Ajax. Uh, I think this was all they were thinking about how to replace company in the squad. Company leaving caught them by surprise. They they thought that company was staying for another year, the same that David Silva was. They wanted company to stay. I think that the opportunity to manage Anderlecht, obviously his boyhood club and the club that he developed at was too good an opportunity for company to turn down. And I think in the end the club kind of respected that. But they have had to explore different ways that they can fill that four centre-back role. They have John Stones, they have Imeric Laporte, and they have Nicolas Otamendi still. At this time, at the end of last season, Nicolas Otamendi was was set to leave Manchester City because he thought the company was staying and he didn't want to be a backup. I think that company leaving saw Otamendi move up, obviously, into one of the first-choice three centre-backs, so there will be significantly more playing time for him. I think they did look at Harry Maguire. I think that the price tag potentially put them off. 
but I don't think that he would be a natural fit for, for Guardiola. A lot's made in the media about Maguire's ability on the ball and his ability to pass the ball. He's not actually as good a passer as, as some people seem to think he is. He's very effective when he has the ball at his feet and he's able to run forward into space. He, he's big, he's quick, he's quite good on the ball. He's able to run forward and break lines in that way. But you can also be caught out defensively, which is, I think is something that Guardiola would be intent on kind of stopping. So I don't think, I think if, if Maguire does leave, and I understand he's asked to leave Leicester City now, I think that if he does leave, it will be to join United and not City. I think he'd probably be a better fit United as well. Yeah, I have to. I certainly have to agree on that one. So just going back to to the start of uh, of Guardiola's reign at Manchester City, then that first season, um, critics are desperate to to get on him. You know the um, the, the the I don't know what you, would you call him. Um, Sections of the media are almost Premier League ultras, desperate for anyone who's come from abroad to disparage their record because they haven't done it in the Premier League. Yada <laughs> yeah. yada yada. Yeah, uh, and you know, it, it, they didn't. They didn't look like winning the the Premier League that first season. Obviously, weren't weren't any great shakes in in European football either. So, how do you assess his first season at Manchester City? I think his first season was when we saw the biggest transformation of Guardiola as a coach. I think I've already touched upon the fact that I think he's he's changed his his um his all or nothing style if you like this this idea that he that football had to be played in a certain way and couldn't be played in any other way. I think that that was the season they saw that change. I remember there were a couple of games where they played against teams and Guardiola would come away in the post-match press conference and he couldn't quite believe how much time the ball had spent in the air, for example. It was something that was completely new to him. I think at that point, we saw Guardiola really start to to appreciate the influence and the impact that the likes of Sergio Aguero um, could have in the team. I think that was when Aguero firmly established himself towards the end of that first season. For the first few months, it, it was debatable whether Aguero would last out the season at City. But I think that as the season went on and as Guardiola began to understand what the Premier League was like, because I guess as a coach, it can be very difficult to to move countries in the way that he has. To go from Spanish football, which obviously he knew so well, and he knew that he was able to, to implement the, the Barcelona philosophy, his philosophy, his position of play philosophy, to then go to a league like Germany, which was when he when he got there was undergoing the the gegenpressing and counterpressing kind of revolution when clubs it didn't matter which club you played against they would press you and press you and press you and I think having to adapt to that and then to come to England where perhaps elements of the game are a little bit more physical a little bit quicker if you like maybe a little bit less technical I think that every step of the way he's kind of refined the way that he wanted to. He wanted his size to play football and he's refined the, the way that he understood football to be as well. So I think that on reflection, that first season certainly would go down. Guardiola would be the first to say that it was a failure because they didn't win the league. And that's, again, it's a mark of the fact that he's been as successful as he has, that it's an anomaly when one of his teams doesn't win the league and he gets, gets great criticism. But you can only have one winner in the league every season and for it to be the same coach or the same club all the time just isn't realistic. 
So I think that he took quite a lot of lessons away from that first season. I think he he was maybe a bit bloodied, a bit battered, but it's again a mark of him that he didn't turn his back on the club and say that English football wasn't for him and that his style of football couldn't be played in England. He just refined it a little bit and added a little bit and we've seen the fruits of that since. Uh, what about in terms of him learning from other coaches, do you, do you feel, you know, the challenges that he's been up against, obviously you've got different types of football uh, in the Premier League, like you said, more physical. You, you think about uh, people like Sean Dyche and the incredible job he's done for Burnley and the types of challenges that he sets uh, opposition managers. You know, and years ago it, it was... Tony Pulis with Stoke, you know, the, the, the classic uh, sort of British, the old school British yeah, underdog. Yeah. Uh, how, how do you feel then he, he's he's taken to that? And, and do, you, do you feel like he's shown some of his tactical nous in those challenges? To a point, yes. I mean, I think that the big challenge for players like that, for teams like that, obviously, it's Tony Pulis specifically, mm-hmm. was a lot of their goals would come from set pieces. So, there's no real way to negate the threat of set pieces. You can train and coach certain blocking techniques, certain blocking patterns to to prevent attackers from having clear runs at goal, if you like. But big physical players will always prevent a problem with set pieces. I think that what we've seen, and especially over the course of last season, when Guardiola came up against sides who, who were perhaps more physically imposing and who were willing to set in a deep low block and constrict space, I think that's when we saw Man City and Guardiola become almost more attacking and more expansive. There were games last season when they would only have one centre-back in the deeper line and John Stones would go and sit almost as an eight in midfield and Kyle Walker would come slightly in field. So you'd you'd still have the line of three attackers, you'd have the two eights, but then you'd have Fernandinho, you'd have John Stones, you'd have a full-back, all kind of trying to take positions between the lines and, and to give a base for the attacking. And that's kind of what started to press the opposition back. And gradually, that's what led the, the opposition low block to break down by pushing these defenders forward, by pushing fullbacks in areas you wouldn't expect them to be. Suddenly, they were creating passing lanes and angles that traditional low blocks that we'd see from these clubs just couldn't quite compensate for. And that's how Man City started to find their, their way through these blocks. So... I think that rather than try to meet these physical teams or these these teams that set up in a certain way defensively, rather, rather than try to meet them like for like, Guardiola's almost gone the other way and he's become more a version of what he wanted his teams to be, more expansive, more attacking, more with, more passing, if you like, just to try and find ways through them. So I think that's all been kind of a reaction to the kind of teams that he's had to play against at times in England. And then you get other teams. You get teams like, obviously, Liverpool. You get teams like Spurs who who push him in different ways tactically. And again, it's a mark of the manager, a mark of the coach, that he's able to take all these different challenges and, and kind of rise to them, if you like, even if at times he falls short, specifically in Europe and almost against Liverpool in the Premier League last season. There are times where he does come up short but that doesn't mean that he isn't an excellent coach. You've mentioned Spurs and Liverpool there. I mean, I, mean, I think it's it's quite clear, really, that the, the best three coaches in the Premier League right now are, are Guardiola, Klopp and Pochettino. So yeah. Do you feel that, uh, that Guardiola has 
challenged in a way that's actually you know driven him on and improved him and developed him as a coach in the way that Pochettino and Klopp have of themselves developed and and changed as coaches and, and present different challenges to to Guardiola in his traditional setup. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's that's been a huge part of it. I think that having people who are peers who who challenge in different ways. I mean, let's not make any mistake. Guardiola has struggled against Jurgen Klopp for the last two years. He's struggled to find answers for not only the defensive structure that Klopp and Liverpool use, but he was terrified of the attacking three. He's terrified of Mane Salah and, and Firmino for Liverpool. He's, he's terrified of the spaces that they they occupy, of the runs that they make, of the angles they take up, and the way that they interchange and interplay. And I think having to almost find a way to combat that, I think that is what's kept Guardiola so so fully invested in the last couple of seasons with Manchester City. The, the idea that they were being constantly pursued. The season before last was absolutely no contest in the league. Manchester City ran out winners and, and nobody could argue that they deserved otherwise. And then last season, for it to go down to the, the end the way that it did, that Liverpool still in for a chance for winning the league, I think that that has almost reinvigorated Guardiola. He he sees Klopp as a genuine adversary, and and Pochettino as well. I think that Pochettino, over the last twelve to eighteen months, I think that seeing Spurs not sign anybody and then go on to achieve what they did last season, I think was remarkable. And now that they've added a player like Ndombele, I think that we're only going to see Spurs doubling down, ready to go again this season, and and certainly again Guardiola will feel like he owes Spurs and he owes Pochettino after knocking them out of the Champions League the way they did. For what it's worth though, I don't think that Man City are going to win the league this year. I think that you as a Liverpool fan may be very happy come come May this year. If I was a betting man, that's certainly where my money would be going. Well, you just pinched my next question from me. <laughs> <laughs> I would certainly hope so. Um, that, I guess that was my question, you know, can Manchester Manchester City three-peat? I mean, it, it is an unbelievable achievement, no matter how, you know, how much they've spent and you look at it. As you mentioned at the top of the show, look, you know, Manchester United under Jose Mourinho spent an inordinate amount of money, but yeah. spending money is one thing, spending it wisely and then being able to use them players into a system effectively is something else. Yeah. So Manchester City, yes, they've spent a lot, but they've spent it pretty well. Uh, on the whole, the, the signings have all been successful and, and they, you know, they're a sensational team. You know, 100 points, uh, 98 points. I mean, just how realistic is it that they they get anywhere near to that kind of total again? I mean, do you expect them to get above 90 points again? Yes, absolutely. I, I don't doubt it, even for a second. I think that the changes they made to the squad, I think they've been quite... They haven't obviously outspent their rivals this summer. Yes, Rodri was expensive. I think Rodri will, will take a couple of games kind of to adapt to the tempo of the Premier League, and, and we'll see that. But I think that by the time October, November comes round, he'll being full flow. I think that re-signing Angelino, the, the left-back, to provide cover at that position for, I think Zinchenko is going to be the first-choice left-back. I think Angelino has been signed as cover. I think that's another intelligent move. A player who knows the system, knows the club, knows the city. I think that there's nothing there's nothing standing in the way of City getting to those levels again. I just think that we're going to see uh, a season from Liverpool that will will be enough this time to pip them. I still think that it'll be Liverpool City 1-2. I just think they'll switch to positions at the end of next season, that's all. 
Yeah, and and I'll be honest. Look, um, despite winning the Champions League for the sixth uh, sixth time, if you'd have come to me and said, um, "Look, Manchester City want to swap. You can have the Premier League. They can have the Champions League." Yeah. I would have took it. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and and I make no, you know, I'm not ashamed to say that. But what about this season? Then I mean, this this is the the real thing, isn't it? I think I. Maybe the owners, more than anyone at the club, are absolutely obsessed with achieving that dream of, of winning the Champions League. And Manchester Manchester City have certainly improved over the last couple of years in, in European football. But, mm-hmm. you know, they've gone out to Liverpool, they've gone out to Spurs. Do, do you feel that this season coming up that they, they can go that step further? Do you think they, they can actually go and, and win the Champions League this season? I think that's a million-dollar question, is it? I think it's quite interesting that over the last two years, you touched upon it there, they've gone out to Premier League teams. They've gone out to teams coached by Klopp and coached by Pochettino. Just as we were just discussing there, the coaches that have kind of challenged Guardiola over the last the last couple of years, and that's kind of been all that's really stood, stood in their way in Europe. I think that in order for them to to conquer Europe this year, there, there was a lot of talk last year when they played Spurs. There was a lot of criticism in the media about Guardiola overthinking the game against Spurs, the, the tactical approach. But I don't think that he's a coach that you can almost level that, that accusation at because of the success that he's had and because of the almost the, what am I trying to say, the obsessive way that he approaches football. I think that that's just the way he is. And he'll be the first one to tell you that he made mistakes in the the matches in the Champions League against Liverpool and against Spurs. But I think that going into this season, I think that will be where the balancing act comes in for him. If they're going to go on and get to the semi-finals and the finals of the Champions League, I think that's when they'll maybe start to fall off just a little bit in the league and that's where the difference will be so maybe as a Liverpool fan you should almost be hoping that they get to the final then they'll slip up in the league at the last minute this time I'll, I'll take anything I can get I'll be absolutely <laughs> honest with you I'll take anything I get uh, and look I know over the like you say as a Liverpool fan obviously I'm well averse to uh, to the feelings of many many Liverpool fans out there I see an awful lot of that online and and the two clubs have kind of become adversaries, and it's seen as a, a as a rivalry and whatnot. But I still appreciate the football they play, and and I still appreciate you know Guardiola the coach and what he's achieved over his career, and the, uh, for me the tremendous things that he's brought to football. Yeah. But it, it I I do see similarities with him and Klopp in in that intensity that you mentioned, and he is such an intense individual. Uh, and I guess, you know, the last couple of questions really on Guardiola himself is with that intensity uh, and he's not stayed beyond sort of four years anywhere else. The, the question has to be, you know, just, just how long does he stay in the Premier League? How much longer does he stay at Manchester City before he feels that this this stage of his, his career is done? I think that we have maybe another two years before he decides to move on. I think he will move on, but not quite for the same reasons that he moved on from Barcelona or Bayern Munich. At Barcelona, he made no secret the fact that he was burned out. He was more than just a coach at the club. He was a political figure at the club and a political figure for Catalonia as a region. And the pressure involved in various presidential elections and and stories that were happening off the pitch, I think that kind of took its toll almost more than the rivalry of Real Madrid and Jose Mourinho and 
and winning all the trophies that he did for for Barcelona. I think it was the off-field stuff that kind of kind of made him think it was time to move on. And at Bayern Munich, there there was almost something similar. On the pitch, there was a lot of success. The fans loved him. The, the football he played at Bayern Munich was very different to the football he played at Barcelona, but it was almost equally impressive. They they would regularly have between 65 and 70% possession, and it wasn't just pointless possession. There was a lot of direct passing, a lot of forward progressive passing, and I think that's kind of what made it so interesting. But off the pitch, again, there was... Uh, slight controversy he fell out with a couple of directors at the club he famously fell out with the club doctor who'd been involved with Bayern Munich for for decades and the doctor ended up leaving the club and there was a lot of adverse press about that at the time so again I think all that added up to him wanting to leave at Manchester City you don't get that impression there's not as much as much as people complain about the British press they're, they're nowhere near the levels that he had to put up with at Barcelona um, it's nowhere near as intrusive in his family life as it was at Barcelona so I think that the press he, he manages quite well I think that the decision makers at the club, whether that's Tiki Bergerestein, the director of football or even the, the owners of the club I think that they're in a position now where everything has been built towards his specification for the last three years and you're almost at a point where he's getting almost everything that he asks for on a, a footballing level, on a infrastructure level. And I think that he appreciates that. He appreciates what's being built for him. He quite likes the Premier League. He likes Manchester. His family like Manchester. So I think we're going to see him stay at Man City for longer than he did at, at Barcelona or Bayern Munich. But to, to preempt your question from what you said at the beginning of the show, I think that the next natural destination for him is Italy. Yeah, that, that exactly was going to be my, my next question. And and I guess, you know, with him playing there, um, he's, he's certainly, it's, it's well documented, isn't it? How how much he enjoyed his time as a player there and what he learned from the tactical side of the game as a player in Italy as well. So you, you think that is just really is the, the next step. And it's, I guess it's one that a lot of people expect him to make, but you but you expect that as well. Um, do you think it has to be to a top club then? Or do, or do you think he... He maybe will break the mould and think, yeah, I'll, I'll try something a little bit different. That's where it gets interesting because you get the impression, I don't think Guardiola as a coach is going to coach until he's 70. I think that the way that he coaches and kind of the way that he sees football and what he demands from players, I think there's a shelf life on that. I don't know for sure that he's got more than one more job in him after. To Manchester City, I think there's every chance that he'll have a, a spell in Italy, and then decide that he's done and walk away from football and and almost become a Cruyff-like figure in the background who comments on football if you like, but isn't directly involved. I can certainly see him having that kind of impact at Barcelona, even going into the boardroom at Barcelona potentially. But in Italy, he's always been adamant that he loved his time at Brescia. Obviously, Brescia are, are a smaller club. It would be interesting, I, I think, that if he's ever going to throw this narrative that he needs lots of money in order to succeed, I think that he would do so in Italy. I think that in Italy, the, the players are almost developed from a very young age, tactically, in a very different way to the, the way that they are in many other countries. I think that he'd have players who, who were young, hungry, who were able to, to come in and 
and kind of implement his style of play, I think he'd have a, a, a lot more tactical flexibility with a, a group of young players in Italy. But saying that, I think it's still far more likely that he's going to end up at Juventus in a couple of years' time. <laughs> but again, though, you know, don't worry, Manchester City fans are not just not wishing a, a, a hasty no, departure upon you. Uh, I think it's just as much as anything, isn't it? Appreciating um, the, the the talent of of the man, uh, probably one of the the greatest coaches uh, ever in the game, and um, and yeah, I guess it, for him as well is that wanting to try and learn and develop and and do all these different things and explore the coaching aspect of football, you know, enjoying the actual coaching side of it rather than just, um, you know, just purely winning, winning the trophies, purely being about the glory. Yes, absolutely. I think that'd be the interesting next step, just just to see what he does for the rest of his career. But absolutely, I'm not wishing him to leave the Premier League and leave Man City at any point soon. No. At least it's been an absolute pleasure. Um, we're just about at the end, but before we go, um, your book... Mastering the Premier League, the tactical concepts behind Pep Guardiola's Manchester City. Uh, where can listeners um, get a copy? It's available to pre-order now. It's pre, you can pre-order on Amazon. Um, it's released on the 16th of September. Once it's released, you'll be able to find it in bookshops. You'll be able to find it on Amazon. You'll be able to find it in all other normal retailers where you'll buy books. Uh, excellent. And, and please do go out and get yourself a copy. And uh, another one, Lee, then, where can the listeners find you online if they're not already following you, of course? Uh, yeah, you, you can find me on Twitter. Usually I'm, I'm most you know, active on Twitter, so at FM Analysis. All of my written work goes at the moment on totalfootballanalysis.com. That's the website that we set up a few years ago for kind of to give a new voice to tactical analysis. And we've grown now to have a stable of something approaching 50 writers over a couple of sites. So there's always a lot of tactical and, and scouting content going on there. So if you're interested in that kind of thing, then please check it out. Again, thank you so much for joining us, Lee. Thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyable. Um, but folks, that is it for this episode of The Dugout. Uh, so from me, Andy Wales, it's a thank you all for listening here uh, to The Dugout on WFI and bye-bye now.